global south, often people are the infrastructures because the infrastructures are absent, or they make or they complete them. They are completely involved in the making of houses, streets, public spaces, and settlements. And there's something really remarkable about that. And that could be recognized. And self-help could be facilitated and supported. And people should be given housing rights as a result of their own effort. After all, they're the people who are making the city, right? That public officials and industry and commerce depend upon. Push the analogy even further. They are the makers of the city in the global south. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Ash Amin, Professor of Geography and Fellow of Christ College, University of Cambridge in the UK. One of his research interests is infrastructures for the poorest population, and this is also what we will talk about today, with a focus on mental health and well-being. And this is the second episode within the theme Infrastructures in our podcast. Ash Amin has been a fellow at SCAS in the spring of 1999 and 2011, and is also a member of the Academic Senate at SCAS. During this year, he also holds the Olof Palme Guest Professorship at Uppsala University, and we might get into that later on during this episode. Welcome to SCAS Talks. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Natalie. I'm Professor of Geography at Cambridge and I've been there since 2011. And then prior to that, I was at Durham University for 17 years, where I actually founded its own Institute of Advanced Study, shaped very much in the image of SCAS, and that was in 2006. Very interesting. And we will get back to your experience at SCAS later on, as we usually do in these episodes. So very broadly, what is your research about? Well, currently it's on how cities affect uh, the mental health of its most marginalized communities, such as poor migrants, and with a focus very much on cities in the global south, some of which we will talk about in a minute. This current interest is part of a longer-standing interest in the life of cities as what I would call machines of well-being and misery, or of culture and politics, where by machine I mean how these outcomes are played out through the engagement of people with the extensive technological infrastructures that you find in cities, whether these are electricity networks or water networks or housing networks or the built environment in general, indeed also services. And so what I've been interested in doing for, well, well over a decade is to try and develop a, what I would call a post-human reading of urban life, how the assemblages of socio-technical systems within cities affect the human endeavor. And starting with a book that I did in 2003 with Nigel Thrift called Rethinking the Urban, and then 2017, another book called Seeing Like a City, again with Nigel Thrift. And in press right now is a book with Duke, co-edited with Michele Lancione, called Grammars of the Urban. So it's really the urban structures that you're interested in? Pretty much so, yes. 
So how come you got interested in this research area? Well, my interest in the most marginalized communities actually originates in a SCAS fellowship in 2011. At the time, I was invited to a two-day event hosted by Yo King at Gripsom Castle on future cities and sustainability. And what was interesting over the two days was that the discussion was almost on everything except urban poverty, which struck me as quite odd, given that then and also by 2030, something like a quarter of the world population would be living in slums, facing varying degrees of deprivation. So it was then that I decided to work on urban poverty, initially in very general terms, so as to get a sense of the scale and the severity of the problem, and then later to begin to understand particular places with an interest in the agency of the poor and what enables or stifles this agency. And at that time, there was an emerging small body of writing on informality in the global south. And what my specific aim was to look at the meeting point, if you like, the encounter between, on the one hand, the political economy of marginalization by markets and by states, for example, and on the other hand, the efforts of the poor themselves to manage their lives. And I wanted to show that this meeting point is very much controlled or regulated by infrastructures. The availability and the quality of utilities, services, housing, roads, education and welfare, and so on, where these infrastructures are uniquely and almost always incomplete and often broken and also very visible in the slums. You know, you see overhanging wires, you see exposed drains, you see exposed water pipes. And these are also always controlled by very powerful intermediaries, ranging from local mafia or the state that extracts all kinds of rent, excessive rent for these infrastructures. So they're always the object of dispute and struggle. And in general terms, I felt, you know, these infrastructures were very crucial intermediaries of people's lives and their life chances. But I also felt the more I did this work, I saw that these infrastructures were also closely involved in the making of people's subjectivity, their characters as humans, their capabilities, their mental and physical well-being and disposition. So I saw, for instance, how in the slums of Cape Town, with the post-apartheid state trying to provide serviced housing on a very inadequate basis, I should say, there was a kind of a subjectivity on the part of the people of waiting for the state rather than rolling up their own sleeves to create settlements. Whereas in Brazil, in the complete absence of state support for a very long time, settlements had emerged through the efforts of the poor themselves to claim the land and to build on the land. And here you see a, an agency, a subjectivity, if you like, formed out of collective effort, collective construction of the infrastructure. So this is just one example of what I mean by subjectivity. And then much more recently, I've become interested in how the ways in which the urban poor experience informal infrastructures and habitats, and how this experience shapes 
their states of mental well-being from does it make them resigned to their circumstances does that make them extremely vulnerable or do these infrastructures and the habitats support enterprise and sociability so here i become interested in looking at the urban human mind or the urban mind through let's call it material culture the experience of the rudimentary and sometimes incomplete built environment in which the poor themselves are active builders yeah so there's a clear difference in taking initiative yourself and doing something and waiting for the states to come and help you there's a huge difference and what i'm trying to show in my work is that these differences are not just the product of people's life circumstances and individual mentalities and states of mind but they're also the product of the environments they find themselves in and also the quality of infrastructures that they're engaging with so you look into the lives and the infrastructures of the poorest among us or in the world can you give us a description what these environments and lives look like can you sort of describe what they go through what it looks like in these cities or parts of cities that you look at they vary enormously in shanghai I've worked in poor industrial neighborhoods and also in a city spaces which are not slums and which have all the infrastructures very much in place but which offer rural migrants coming in from the Chinese countryside quite poor housing and working conditions and very restricted residential rights because their residence is in the rural areas officially anyway in cape town I've looked at impromptu land occupations by the poor with everything built from scratch where you find quite heavy policing and barely any services i've also looked at very old townships of apartheid that are mixes of development and vibrancy and also illegal shacks that really challenge life but also housing settlements created by the state after apartheid which are rather uniform in nature but nonetheless give free housing free services and then in brazil in the city of belo horizonte my focus has been very much on what you might call organized land occupations where architects and social movements work with collectives of the poor to then create a settlement ex novo from the ground and where the settlers begin to build all the private and public spaces in an orderly and in a kind of collective manner So these let's call them informal settlements in the global south the ones I've looked at you know they range from being bona fide poor neighborhoods in big cities to places of occupation that unfold in front of your eyes So when you do your research if I've understood it correctly you go and visit different areas of the poorest and talk to people also people who live there Can you share any experiences with us? Almost always my work has involved working with local researchers, local experts and local facilitators. I've never had enough time to spend more than a few days or a few weeks in the slums that I've worked in. And the work itself has involved a lot of time just hanging out, talking, coming back day after day. making notes recording the interviews listening to experts and professionals and above all engaging 
actively with the residents. And almost always I've been struck by the willingness of people to talk freely and frankly, by the depth and articulacy of their vernacular knowledge. They know what confronts them. They know what would make things better. And they're very clear in the way they express themselves. And I've been struck always by their generosity of time and the offer of food and drink. And on most occasions, without any expectation, they accept that you're a researcher who's interested in their lives. But sometimes they do ask you what you can do for them, which of course is a very difficult subject if you're a kind of ethnographer in the field and where you're supposed to remain, let's not say detached, but as neutral as possible. We can return to this question a bit later if you like. Yes, that would be very good because it is an important and I guess very difficult question. So as you mentioned in your recent work, you have looked at the mental health of the poor in Shanghai and also in Delhi and India. What do you want to address in this work? You've already told us a little bit, but what did you do there? Well, the Shanghai project is with Lisa Richard. She's an ethnographer. She was based there for three years and also with professors Nick Rose and Nick Manning at King's College in London. And the study responds to a hypothesis in sociology and psychiatry, an increasingly popular hypothesis, that the poor in cities suffer from mental health problems of both a severe and a mild nature as a result of urban modernity and urban poverty and urban stress in general, which is held to push the migrants towards depressions, schizophrenia, or even suicide because of a series of urban stressors, the pace of life, harsh living and work circumstances, alienation, deprivation. And in our project, which focused on an area suffering very rapid deindustrialization, an area called Juting in southwest Shanghai, and also, for sake of comparison, an old last remaining low-rise neighborhood in the central business district, a place called Fuzhou Road, where young people from rural areas work precariously in the service sector. In both these places, facing very different circumstances and very different types of migrant, we found very little evidence of severe mental disorders, you know, such as acute anxiety or psychosis. And perhaps we missed the people who were suffering from these problems because they'd been taken back to the rural areas or we wouldn't have access to them. Or perhaps in their milder versions, the individuals only saw them as signs of physical ailment and not mental ailment. But I don't think this was entirely the case because what we did see was there were plenty of signs of ongoing, and let's call it chronic, but not acute stress, which is posed by their precarious position because of uncertainty, in the case of juting, job loss, because for the younger people, long hours and no employment rights. And they all talked about this thing called yali, okay, which in Chinese means stress, varying degrees of stress. And they talked about the yali leading to mild disorders, such as anxiety, sometimes depression. 
But what we also found, and I think these are the unique aspects of our research, we also found very strong signs of coping with Yali, with people finding ways to slow down time and to break down that overwhelming pressure of being in the city. And we found that in these processes of slowing things down and coping with them, the engagement with the habitat, with infrastructures, played a very important role in domesticating stress in a number of different forms. For instance, hanging out on the street to talk to familiar others, to share problems, to share news, coming out in the evenings to do line dancing in an opening in a street, in juting, facing unemployment, watching a lot of soaps and films on mobile phones in the middle of town, young people hanging out in libraries and bookshops in the hope of self-betterment. Of course, always walking and dwelling a familiar landscape with other familiar people. So what we found was that dwelling practices, urban form, and familiarity with your local environment became involved centrally in the making and the management of mental health, which then caused us to question analysis of subjectivity that take the city as an external influence on what are largely internal subjective mental processes, rather than focusing on practices of dwelling in the way that Heidegger would have wanted us to understand, that, that these active dwelling practices and everyday rituals of engaging with people, things, bodies, environments, centrally implicated in the shaping of mental states. That was the nature of the work in Shanghai. And if you like, I can tell you a little bit about the work that I've been doing in Delhi. Yes, please. So this relationship on conceptual terms, you know, between body, mind and habitat is exactly how we saw, I saw things played out during my research in Delhi. So I did some field work in Delhi just before the COVID pandemic broke out. That was in January 2020. And I was working there with a colleague of mine at Cambridge called Man Barua, and also a very brilliant young economics graduate called Gunjesh Kumar. And our focus was on mental well-being in an old and pretty well-functioning informal settlement in South Delhi, not so far from the Jawaharlal Nehru University. But we also worked in an area called Yamuna Pushta, which is a strip along the Yamuna River in Old Delhi, where the homeless camp out. In the old settlement near the university, which is called Kusumpur Pahari, you know, the settlement is very close to work and other opportunities in South Delhi, which is quite a rich and dynamic area, and where recent years have brought free electricity, free water, and a host of other services, but also access to basic schooling and healthcare. So in Kusumpuri, the lives of the poor are variegated, but also quite stable. You have all the classes and castes and religions. Life is challenging, no question, because of uh, density and crampness. 
because of the constant threat of eviction, even informal settlements in India, which have been around for 30 or 40 years, some of them are considered to be illegal and they could be just bulldozed by the authorities. So there's this sense of anxiety of eviction. There's also the problems of small-scale criminality and huge lack of privacy and water supplies. Fresh water, drinking water is not on tap, but it comes in tankers once a week. So there's always this scramble to get water. But in Kusumpuri, like so many informal settlements in all Indian cities, you know, which make up such a large part of urban life, there you can get by. And once again, we see there how various mental states, from your subjective strength and resilience to vulnerability and mental instability, are worked in through engagements with space, okay, which I'll try to explain now. How everyday practices such as gathering in public space, living in close proximity to others, having brief exchanges in the neighborhood or in the street, allowing private life of necessity to always pour over, spill over into public space, how people stopping at temples and wayside shrines, the facts of enjoying the recent arrival of free municipal services and new educational and training services, all of these we were able to see, or we wanted to see, as important psychological intermediaries, always intervening to regulate the balance between personal satisfaction or personal distress. And, you know, and this kind of work chimes with an emerging body of ethnographic research around the world, which are very, very attentive to, attuned to the ways in which making a habitat a place to live in and a familiar place affects well-being, physical and mental. And there are you know, a number of ethnographies of the work of a whole series of people I could cite here. Now, if we go to Yamunapushta, along the banks of the, the river, these same relationships could be observed between the environment and people's lives and mental dispositions. But here, and this is why the comparison was so useful. Here, everything was working very much in the negative register. So in Yamunapushta, you find that the infrastructures and services also play a pivotal role, but largely in the form of their absence. But also, we found that, and this was a new dimension to our research, that the presence or absence of institutional intermediaries like non-governmental organizations are also really quite crucial in managing mental life. And I'll explain this in a minute. So just by way of background, Yamunapushta is split on two levels. The upper level is where non-governmental organizations provide managed shelters to only the few of homeless, people who are of a certain age, for instance and where water is available, where there are washing and toilet blocks, and where every day, twice a day, at least pre-COVID, vans would arrive to distribute free food. And then you have the lower level, where there's a massive visible water pipe that cuts through the lower level, where the majority of the homeless people live. 
in the dirt and amongst the trees under makeshift wood or plastic shelters and sometimes covered by blankets. In Yamunapushta, there's plenty of evidence of mental trauma, which is linked to, to loneliness, to stigmatization, to unemployment. If people find work, it's never more than a three or four days a month. Okay, so it's not a lot. In pretty poor type of work, they suffer from illness without question. A lifetime of being on the move, being exposed to the elements. And of course, they suffer hugely from drug and drink dependence. So the homeless here, in the lower level at least, are just about hanging on. And they're hanging on because they're helped by the availability of free services and free food, and as well as the vital support of dedicated NGOs like the Center for Equity Studies, for instance, where the officers there walk around, look out for the homeless, help them find, you know, to, to secure papers on the basis of which they would get food rations, for instance, to get them to medical centers where they can get some sort of help when they're ill, or even to places for drug abusers. But they are surviving by a very slim thread. And their resilience here is, is a result of their own inner strength. And of course, they've been helped along hugely by even the most basic rudimentary infrastructures they have. But the new point, as I said before, is their subjectivity, whether it's their bodily well-being or their mental well-being, is very much mediated by the coming and going of NGOs, which help them with food, paper, shelter, and medical care. So here, if you want to narrow down on the habitat, the environment itself, here the habitat makes things a lot worse. With the exception of in that habitat, there are some friendships which are built and people help each other, only to a degree, or in the form of people coming together to keep warm or to drink or take drugs. Or, most fascinatingly, the presence of a makeshift cinema, a very large space covered with plastic and bamboo and all sorts and kitted out with carpets in the middle where people can keep warm because for 10 rupees you're allowed to watch three films. And, you know, Indian films are quite long, so that's probably around more than six hours. And the lower levels, just to summarize, is a pretty grim place. And I think COVID would have made things a lot worse because the homeless, by and large, been cleared out of Yamuna Pushta. And of course, with the added burden now that they've also been stigmatized, often as carriers of disease. So it's very hard to know what's happened to them other than facing even greater misfortunes. But to come back to the question of subjectivity, mental health, and infrastructures or, or environment, already you can see from these two examples, and also from the Shanghai example, that in as much as that relationship is constant, the form that it takes, the manifestations of the habitat, relationships with the habitat have on mental health, vary enormously, which is why it's so important to have detailed, forensic, grounded evidence and information from which you can read people's mental states.
I think we only too often make very crude generalizations about the relationship between place and bodily health. You had this Chinese word, yali, for, for the stress inflicted on, on these people. I read in your papers you also had a word there for Delhi, for the Indian ones, majbuti. Ma, yeah, majbuti. Can you tell us more about that? Majbuti means strength, kind of a fortitude. And it was very interesting that in Delhi, when we talked to various people about you know what keeps you going and what sustains you, typically and almost always, it was men who said majbuti. I'm fine because I'm a strong man. And ironically and revealingly, women in the slum, in Kusumpuri, never used the word majbuti as a kind of an inner resource. It's too masculine in many ways. They used words like shakti, which is more like forbearance, or other words which very much imply that they are what they are because they have to endure. And they have a kind of certain capacity to endure, to some extent also indicating that, well, what choice do we have other than to endure the circumstances that we face? Here, the gendering of the word strength is extremely re relevant and revealing. And, you know, the men and the women explain their capacity to, of forbearance or resilience in completely different ways. And of course, The women in uh, Kusumpuri, their presence is absolutely pivotal in every respect, as is their ability to endure. Because in Kusumpuri, in all the slums I've ever been to, not so much in Yamunapushta because it's mainly just homeless men who live there, the women in slums are homemakers, they're peacemakers, their workers, and a lot more. They're kind of almost everything. They are the staple of existence. Often they're the ones who go out to earn. You know, in Delhi as maids in nearby middle-class areas. They get up very early in the morning to cook and care for the family, to prepare the rest of the family for the day. And they work late into the night, often having come back from work, to then fulfill a whole series of domestic and extended family duties. They're the ones who are bringing up the children and trying to keep them from straying. They're the ones who are caring for the community. They're the ones who demand services. They are the lifeblood, I think, of informal settlements and certainly the slum that I studied. And rather like Yali in Shanghai, the women endure extreme stress and anxiety. No question about that. And often, like in Shanghai, they also somatize their mental fragilities. Okay? They read their mental fragilities as physical ailments. Oh, I can't sleep. Oh, I have a constant pain in my stomach. They don't say, possibly they don't recognize that they might be depressed or they might be acutely anxious. And what's very interesting is that they rarely seek also help either because of the lack of money or awareness of where to go or awareness that their own illness is a mental problem, but importantly also because of a huge fear of stigma. A woman on whom a lot of people depend, 
whether it's the employer or your extended family, cannot afford to declare that they are suffering from mental health problems. They would be stigmatized. All this said, they're also, for an, of an observing outsider like me, they're also re- remarkably enduring. You see this forbearance in the face of hardship. Time and again, I saw women who were facing real, real difficulties in the face of hardship, of worry, of poverty, of male violence, that there is a kind of quiet, unspoken ability or desire or inevitability to keep going. And but to talk about it, this ability, in actually very interesting ways, you know, not as crisis or as desperation, but almost as, uh, as I said, in the language of forbearance and, and shakti. So we met countless women, young and old, who spoke about fighting on, of trying every possible avenue, of saying not to worry, at least I have decent neighbors, at least there are the familiarities of place here, at least I know where things are. You know, so here if habitat in the form of public spaces and temples and shops and sitting on a bed outside in the street or around a corner for gossip of knowing that your settlement is a place of familiar neighbors here you know i think habitat matters as a kind of a cushion and if it does matter as a kind of cushion it is absolutely so also for women and exactly the same happens with when water arrives once a week from these tanks the women gather there's a moment of exchange amidst the very hard work of filling up these water cans but you know more widely the arrival of services in kusumpuri electricity sanitation waste disposal and other infrastructures you know let's not make any mistake the main beneficiaries of this are the women who maintain family and home you know their load has been lifted because of these things all of this said i think it's very important not to romanticize the women's capacity to endure. They endure because they have to. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that. It's easy to get sort of this hero picture in your head. And I guess we shouldn't do that. Not at all. So we have gotten quite an insight on how important this, the habitat uh, is for mental well-being and for the everyday life of the poorest. You have been briefly touching the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you know anything what has happened in these areas? since the onset of the pandemic? You know, my great frustration is that I genuinely do not know. From time to time, I've asked the people who help me, the researchers on the ground, and they also say, well, you know, we've really not been able to go back. Uh, It's been hard to go back to Yamuna Pushta or to Kusumpuri. So I can only make some intelligent speculations. Let's put it that way. I think in Kusumpuri, COVID, at least in its most intense phases, would have pushed people back into the interiors, off the streets, and in a neighborhood where, like I've been trying to argue, the exteriors are so important for transactions, for light relief, for sociability, and so many other things, for commerce. Here, I think this push of people back into the interiors would have had a real impact on people's mental health. I have no doubt about that. Then who knows also if the tensions of caste and class and religion within Kusumpuri 
might have been escalated by COVID, where friendly neighbors becoming more suspicious of each other, perhaps starting to blame each other. Who knows? I have no real evidence here. I would not be too surprised if amidst growing job loss and confinement during the worst months of the pandemic, social tensions, intercommunal tensions might have increased. In Yamunapushta, as I've said, I think the effect would have been devastating. Remember, yes, they would have been cleared out of the area. I think that I do know to be the case. The NGO support has closed down as well. And then beyond the Yamuna Pushta, beyond the strip in Old Delhi, life would have got a lot worse for the homeless. Because, you know, let's not forget the homeless depend on a vibrant life in the streets for their fortune, whether it's work or if they're begging or to be visible enough, take away their visibility and of other people and you take away their opportunity base. This is how they get by and get on. So I think, let's put it this way, I think the silencing of the streets during the pandemic's high points would have been a silencing of the homeless themselves. And on top of that, I think they would have been moved along, absolutely moved along, because there are, you know, all kinds of prejudices come out in these difficult moments, don't they? And the homeless would have been identified as carriers of disease. And that's a great, great problem. So, you know, I just wonder, where will they have gone? Will they have survived the long journey back home if they went back home? And for the homeless person, and a person who's moved so many times from state to state across India, where is home? Where is that place to go back to? Will they have dispersed within the city itself? Probably. And of course, dispersal away from each other and away from the NGOs giving them help and support and the free services means trauma and nothing other than trauma. So I imagine the situation was and is bad. Yeah, not to mention if if they get ill, of course, if they catch the virus. Absolutely. Now, what I can just imagine, I mean, the, the stress of the pandemic has affected us all, and we are not at all that bad off otherwise. And still, you get stressed about the whole situation. So I can just imagine how somebody living under those conditions would get very effective in in ways of in the meaning of mental health and and well being. They've got nowhere to go. I mean, in the UK. For once, the government did something decent for the homeless. They put them up in shelters and hotels, and they fed them. And so in Delhi, it would be exactly the opposite. So their situation, their already bad life circumstances would have got a lot worse. And as you said, the very fact of they themselves catching the disease, how do they recover? How do they get food? How do they get water? How do they get treatment? Would have been pretty, pretty grim, I think. With the results from your studies, where do you go next? You were into this before. The people you meet in these areas ask you. They're happy to to talk to you for sake of research. But um, how can you help them? What can you do with your results? In normative and moral terms, I'll be quite honest, doing this kind of work is always a disappointment. Compared to what you get from the field and from your subjects, what you're able to do for them is so much less. So what do you do? You write, and you hope that you can write in clear enough ways so that your work gets noticed by 
policymakers and practitioners. You work with NGOs and advocates for slums and for the poor. But again, so often you fly away to the comfort of your own home somewhere in the West. And maintaining that contact at a distance is quite difficult. You might end up making a contribution to a charity, which is fine, but that's a long way away from being offering support on the ground. I mean, I know once in Yamuna Pushta, a very desperate woman said to me and my researcher, research assistant, Gunjesh, what are you going to do for us? We've been told that there are these forms we need to fill, or how could I get access to more rice? And there, in the moment, of course, you can help by saying, I'll help you fill in the form. Or, by the way, have you thought about doing this? Look, if you've got a son you know, who needs mental health, take him to this hospital because it's a, it's a very good hospital. Don't be fearful of it because often plum dwellers are very scared of hospitals. But, you know, as I said, it's just one-off. When I retire at the end of next year, I would very much like to become much more directly involved in working with the poor through the appropriate non-governmental organizations. I do, I do acutely feel very morally tested by the work that I'm doing. I understand that. And at the same time, I mean, you show in your work that, I mean, small infrastructural changes can mean quite a lot. So can't there be something done in those areas, offering people a place where they can go, like a library or You mentioned these cinemas, these sort of gathering points where you can take a break and, and find some meaning. Absolutely. I mean, my answer to your question really was about what can I do? But in terms of the implications of my research and my findings, there's an, a lot that can be and should be done. So in the global south, often people are the infrastructures because the infrastructures are absent or they make or they complete them which is my Brazilian example, they are completely involved in the making of houses, streets, public spaces, and settlements. And there's something really remarkable about that. And that could be recognized. And self-help could be facilitated and supported and recognized. And people should be given housing rights as a result of their own effort. After all, they're the people who are making the city right, that public officials and industry and commerce depend upon. Push the analogy even further. They are the makers of the city in the global south, and they're not recognized. So there's an awful lot of recognition could come, okay, a lot. Then I think some kind of global commitment funded by governments, the IMF, the World Bank, multinational corporations, whoever else, the UN above all, a joint commitment rather like we're starting to make a joint commitment towards the environment, a joint commitment to the rights of the poor as a series of infrastructural rights could be really worthwhile by way of ensuring in informal settlements, as I said, something like a third of the world population will be living in such places, that ensure that these places have free and affordable water and energy and sanitation And also the very basics of life, such as education, food, housing, and healthcare. And this would be a massive step forward. Let's not move people away through slum clearances to the outer edges of cities, but let's help them with in situ upgrading 
which some cities and some countries are doing, but let's do it properly in a sustained way and make sure that the services that are being provided are, are of good quality. No, no point in putting down a pipe if only dirty water comes out from it, contaminated water, or a pipe in which the poor are given water for an hour during the day, and it happens to be that hour when everybody else is at work. There are so many things that could be done about the micropolitics of infrastructure provisioning, because if infrastructures are the political means through which people become and stay poor, you know, then the detailed attention, as it were, to the detail itself of infrastructure, who provides, what quality, when, and what kind of tariffs, makes a vast, vast difference. So while the bottom-up, people-led construction of infrastructures is lively, it's creative, and it's collective, it is far from enough. It is rudimentary, and it's a massive drain on people's time and energy. It may make subjectivity in more or less collective and positive ways, but at a huge cost. Public provision of the basics of life would allow the poor to develop their capabilities and make the life explorations that the middle classes are able to make in most cities of the world because of their automatic right to infrastructure. People like you and I take infrastructure for granted. Sometimes it's free, sometimes we pay for it, but we take it for granted. So that should be a right of and for the poor. Yeah, sure, we take a lot for granted there. And uh, as you say, it should be granted for everybody. Places like Shanghai and Delhi and, and other areas that you study, they feel far away from us and we might feel a disconnect from these kind of lives and circumstances. But even in our Western societies, we see a greater divide between the wealthy and the poor nowadays. So in what way can your observations that you make in your research also be relevant to, for example, Europe or, or United States? I think the parallels are strong and they're there. European societies, advanced economies are becoming more and more unequal, more and more divided, and the poor are getting poorer and poorer and living often in pretty terrible urban circumstances. No doubt about that. We may not have slums, but we have vast amounts of urban poverty that COVID has brought out and the long recession after 2008 has also brought out. There are more people on the streets and there are more people living in terrible circumstances, often on their own, in high-rise apartments, completely alienated, without social life. So many things to be learned. One, let's not be under any illusion that the urban poor are only to be found in the global south, firstly. Secondly, let's begin to have explicit programs to tackle urban poverty and inequality and alienation in the cities of the north as well, because these programs actually don't exist. You know, we talk about leveling up, but leveling up is, to me, it's a kind of a hollow, almost hypocritical term. You need to be much more targeted here. Thirdly, these interventions may not necessarily be about citizenship rights, but sometimes they are when you're talking about refugees and minorities. And they're absolutely about infrastructural rights. Again, maybe less so about water, sanitation and electricity, but absolutely about housing, access to housing, social housing, the quality of housing, the amount of rent you pay and how long you can stay for. 
these are all infrastructural questions. Moving on, I'd say that uh, everything that I've said about the making of subjectivity through the practices of dwelling and how habitats, as it were, talk back, is valid. It's absolutely valid for the global north. People who suffer from mental health, whether you're talking about young people or migrants or the poor, the very poor, we need to focus a lot more on how their own living environments and the wider city in which they find themselves. And this work is happening, you know, through people like Ola Soderstrom in Switzerland and many, many people I know in geography working on mental health in the cities of the north. You know, this research shows that if we improve public spaces, if we make neighborhoods more open, more communal, if you bring people into collective endeavors of one kind or another in the way that you find in copious amounts in the global south, if you improve people-to-people and people-to-environment relationships, if you create those very, very safe micro spaces in which people do completely feel familiar with the, the local environment, then your mental state changes and it improves. I'm saying there are parallels, and actually there's a lot to learn from the cities of the global south, a vast amount to learn. We should not think of these cities as hopeless or basket cases. In years to come, in the sort of crisis-ridden societies we live in, and with the threat of climate change, we could well learn from cities of the South where people already experience these terrible circumstances to see how they cope, how they live, how they learn. This kind of evacuation of markets and states from the lives of people in the North is coming. And to maintain that idea of that you can just wait for the state simply won't work. It will not work. You know, something else will have to be done and there are lessons to be learned, I think. This year, you hold the Olof Palme Professorship at Uppsala University, and you are working on a project that addresses how to recover social democracy from xenophobia. Can you tell us a bit more about that project? Yes, of course, and I'll try and keep it quite brief because the work is still developing. I feel very honored to have been awarded the professorship and remain enormously grateful to the Swedish Research Council and especially to Professor Anders Ekstrom in the Department of History of Science and Ideas. He's the person who invited me and, and I thank him for hosting me so attentively and with, with real kind of care and interest. This collaboration has been quite unique and very fruitful. And the opportunity has allowed me to start a book on how we can imagine alternatives, as you said, to xenophobic nationalism, whose spread in Europe and beyond has become really quite frightening, not least because of the popular appeal of nativism and its kind of nostalgia for an old lost nation to so many people. And it's worrying because of the implications of nativism for all those people who will be considered as outsiders, whether they're migrants or refugees or minorities or liberals or so many other things that are considered to be on the outside of the coherent nation. So what the book does is it examines new ways of imagining the nation 
as an imagined community based on making a case for the inevitability of co-proximity with others who you do not know, the inevitability of interaction with the unknown, whether it's humans or non-humans or nature, that in a sense, that's one of a kind of a condition of modern existence, which is our contiguity with the strange, and that therefore an idea of nation built around an idea of the community to come based upon creating proximities with all those things that we do not yet know would be one potential way forward in rescripting, rewriting the nation, which at the moment the forces against xenophobic nationalism haven't even begun to contemplate what kind of idea of nation should we be offering liberal democrats, social democrats, socialists, greens, there is no definition of imagined community other than complaining that the vision of the nativists is problematic. You can't just complain, you need to offer something else. So the book also then looks into, delves into the urban ground of coexistence, of convivial practices along the lines that we've been discussing. That urban ground can become a platform for publicizing new ways of belonging, where you find in the city itself not necessarily coexistence based on collaboration, but a coexistence based on the indifference to difference. People kind of just getting along, rubbing along, enjoying shared services, united by the commons, and not necessarily mutual recognition. So it's a kind of a urban life when we look deep into it, tells us very much that the life practices have very little bearing on the nativist vision of how to come together. Coming together is about thrown togetherness and about contiguity, about coexistence, about cohabitation. And it's not problematic. <laughs> it's not problematic. And the book also observes how the public sphere itself has become so toxic closed and corporatized, ironically because of the rise of the social media, because it makes small communities big. And what I try to do in one of the chapters is to explore ways in which we could begin to make the public sphere a more open space, a space of democratic and free engagement, an intellectual space. By this I don't mean bringing back the public sphere of public intellectuals, but the public sphere in which there is active, free debates and decisions result on the basis of that discussion and the debate and the argument and the disagreement, as opposed to a kind of play of powers and a play of force between neo-nationalists and Facebooks and others who then feel a bit scared to express themselves. And then the book closes with how the arts themselves, from drama through to the visual arts, might be able to help in offering this new sense of an imagined community by finding ways in which the fugitive and the dissident practices of coexistence that we find absolutely everywhere under the radar of xenophobic nationalism could become much more visible and more encouraged amongst the publics, you know, in the same way as the nativists have been using their limited template to create a whole kind of image and a picture of 
resentment and xenophobia and secession and exit, how the practices of susceptibility towards each other and towards the environment and to nature and to animal life can become a new artistic compass of a different way of living in a community of strangers. So this has been a very demanding labor for me, I will openly admit, partly because of the breadth of the topic and my struggle to try and find a distinctive voice. But some 65,000 words later, I think I'm in a position to finish it quite soon, to give it some coherence, and then hopefully get somebody to publish it. None of this could have happened without the Palma Professorship, conversations with Anders Ekstrom and other colleagues at Uppsala, including you know, a wonderful small symposium we organized in SCAS early in the summer. Talking about the SCAS, you have been here two times, first in 1999 and then again in 2011 as a fellow, and you're still associated also. So what is your own experience of SCAS? I think of SCAS rather like a jewel, a jewel that shines brightly and stands for the very highest standards of scholarship. The two fellowships I have had, that I've been really privileged to have, have enabled me to undertake three book projects. And they wouldn't have happened otherwise. Okay, There would have been articles, but not books. So the freedom that SCAS offered me, you know, just to think without many obligations, along with the interdisciplinary environment, the intellectual nourishment from such an amazing bunch of co-fellows, the beautiful surroundings of SCAS, and the Rolls-Royce support from its directors and staff are quite unique, I would say, in the world. And this is exactly why I tried to export the SCAS model to Durham in the mid-2000s. And then, you know, my attachment to Uppsala almost as a second home, and my many friendships and collaborations in Sweden over so many years are owed in very large measure to SCAS, which I'm very happy to see goes from strength to strength. SCAS has been very important for me, and I think SCAS is very important for Swedish interdisciplinary intellectual life. And SCAS is very important for scholars around the world facing incredibly demanding time pressures, difficult university circumstances, moving away from free thinking and free scholarship. And it offers to this community of, let's call them intellectuals, the rare opportunity to write those books that otherwise simply would not be written. So when you say that you exported the SCAS model to, to another university, to Durham, how did you do that? I'm really curious. How can you take one thing and just put it somewhere else? Or what parts of it can you take with you? So Durham is a beautiful Uppsala-type university town in the north of England. It's like in Oxford and Cambridge in the north of England. This majestic castle, majestic cathedral, it's a collegiate university. And I just thought that wouldn't it be amazing to have an interdisciplinary institute with two batches of visiting fellows working with, and this was the slight difference, working very actively with academics at Durham. So after that scarce period, and then I went when I went back to Durham, I was head of department in geography for a long time, and there was a discussion 
once with the then Vice Chancellor, a very firing man who used to be the Chief Medical Officer of the UK called Sir Kenneth Kalman. And he half jokingly said to me, so what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, uh, I'd like to create a SCAS, an Institute of Advanced Study at Durham. And he said, okay, as long as you say it's my idea, because I've always wanted to do that as well. And so we set about doing this, you know, and there were these co-directors of mine and I, we imagined a model. And for me, the model was scarce. People would come for not such a long period, but a full term, three months in two groups, a group of 10. But there were some differences. I thematized it. So, you know, the first year's theme was, what is the legacy of Charles Darwin? Another theme was modeling. Another theme was water. Another theme was, what is it to be human? And we then brought people from around the world, from all the disciplines. It was clear in my mind that this could only work if we had the humanities and the sciences together. And then around that fellowship program, I also created, because we had an th annual theme, we set aside some money for colleagues at Durham to form interdisciplinary teams to bid for some research funding, either for a conference or for some research. And at the thirdly, then we kind of hosted the fellows with people also at the university so that strong links would build with the university. So the original idea to have a fellowship-based scheme, people coming there for a certain period, was absolutely taken from SCAS. And then, of course, I nuanced in ways to make sure that because the university put up quite a lot of the funding for this, it was almost £400,000 a year, which is not an insignificant amount of money. When everybody else is fighting for that surplus money, myself and my co-directors tried to make sure that there were going to be net benefits for departments and individuals at Durham. And some of the fellows were also from Durham. So we always tried to, two of the 10 places, we tried to reserve for Durham colleagues. I mean, I ran it for five, six years, and it was just one of the most exciting things I've done in my career. It sounds wonderful. It sounds like the, the place where you want to be as a researcher or as a podcaster. Thank you very much for joining SCAS Talks and talking to me and, of course, to our listeners about your research. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and to listen to you. Thank you, Natalie, for giving me this opportunity and doing this podcast in such an expert and professional way. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the second episode in the theme Infrastructures, and I have talked to Ash Amin, Professor of Geography and Fellow of Christ's College, University of Cambridge in the UK, about his work on mental health in slum areas in Delhi in India. In the previous episode, within the same theme, we have heard Elise Demenier-Reutersvart, Associate Professor of Economic History at Stockholm University, and Pro Futura Ciencia Fellow at SCAS about her current book project with the working title Banking Before Banks, Credit and Debt in Pre-Industrial France. And this was episode number 23. This fall, SCAS Talks is featuring the following topics Life Sciences, Infrastructures and Asia. Previous topics have been the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa and life in outer space. 
we are sure that there is something of interest for everybody. Do you like SCUS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. You can find SCUS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. You can also give us a rating or leave a review. My name is Nathalie von der Lea and I would like to thank Ashamin once again for joining me on SCUS Talks. And of course, thank you for listening. Bye for now.